Welcome back to part four of my coverage of Danny O'Neill's run on The Amazing Spider-Man. Issue 217 brings back Hydro-Man and Sandman, both from previous issues, for a massive blowout with our still-wounded hero. The cover, another in the run by John Jr. and Al Milgram, sees both antagonists surround Spider-Man, who seems rather surprised to see them. It's got a Frank Miller vibe to it, but I suspect at this point that's more down to Milgram than Ramita Jr., Here's Mud in Your Eye picks up mere seconds after the last issue. Spider-Man, still knackered, has the two would-be assassins webbed up and the police arrive. All three of them are shocked that the water tower Spider-Man just ripped the roof off houses a reconstituted Mori bench. He powerhouses his way through the cops and Spidey and escapes. Spider-Man, in no fit shape to fight, isn't gutted. Continuity between issues is mostly tight. Spider-Man still has the rip in his mask from the fight with the Frightful Four, and is still reeling from the effects of that battle. However, he picks his street clothes up from a rooftop, but last issue, he left from his apartment. Still, Peter decides some R&R is necessary, and decides to go to the pictures to see Halloween 2. Halloween 2? Not even Halloween? Never really pegged Peter as a horror fan. He meets Deb and Biff coming out of the cinema, and Biff spoils the ending for him. What a tosser. Of course, the meat of this issue is Sandman and Hydroman. Sandman is back in his regular clothes, green striped top and brown pants, rather than the Kirby-designed costume he sports when with the FF. Apparently he doesn't own any other clothes that change when he does. Now see, if he wasn't a bad guy, he could go and hit Reed up some unstable molecules. Of all the gin joints in all the world, he walks into Sadie's. You remember sexy Sadie, right? Hangs out at Duffy's, not too choosy about where she spends her nights. Hits on Hydro Man a lot. Well, Sandy is now hitting on Sadie, which doesn't sound like it's much of a challenge, when in walks a soggy Mori bench. He's aiming to misbehave with Sadie, so he ain't too happy to see her sidling up to another man. Fisticuffs ensue. Sadie, who isn't overburdened with too much schooling, does have a good idea. They should team up. The unlikely threesome then hit the town, stealing stuff to make Sadie feel good. I shudder to think where this will end up. Elsewhere, Peter learns his singing neighbour is the quiet, unassuming Jewish fella named Lonesome Pincus, not the jock-looking guy in the cowboy hat. To be honest, Denny signposted this one. At the Bugle, Peter learns of the Hydro-Sand combo, and incorrectly assumes they're looking for him. Now, this is really an instance where Peter should have stayed out of it, because they aren't looking for him, and in fact couldn't care less about him. They're too busy fighting over Sadie. In fact, Spider-Man's involvement is completely irrelevant to the story, as it turns out. Nevertheless, Spidey busts in, screws up, and during a torrential storm, he pulls the old Bugs Bunny manoeuvre of ducking as Hydro and Sandman collide with each other. They fall into the Hudson River and combine to make one new being, a massive mud monster. 
There's not a lot going on with Peter here, other than briefly bumping into Deb and Biff. Most of the issue is devoted to Sandman, Hydro-Man and Sadie, which explains its lacklustre nature. They just aren't that interesting. It's a massive stroke of luck they should both end up in the same bar, but again, this kind of coincidence is de rigueur in comic book superhero stories, so that's not really an issue. What is an issue is that, let's be honest, this is all a tad silly. Not the whole Sandman and Hydro-Man becoming an encrusted muck monster. No, no, no. Like coincidence, that's par for the course in superhero comics. No, the silly is that Sandman and Hydro-Man spend so much time fawning over Sadie. Now, sure, Hydro-Man has some kind of relationship with her, but I don't get why Sandman sticks around other than male ego. Eh, maybe that's enough. It's not interesting, though. Sorry, this one didn't float my boat. The Frank Miller connection carries over to issue 218, for which he provides the cover. It's Spider-Man vs. the Muck Monster. Eye of the Beholder sees Romita Jr. inked by Mooney and Milgram. Easy the wackiest of the O'Neill run. I have no idea how this ended up here. I mean, yes, comics have outright ripped off films before... For example, the first post-film Star Wars comics are just a space version of The Magnificent Seven. But to take a horror movie and do a straight-up adaptation of it, just dropping Spider-Man in for good measure, takes cojones. Spider-Man has only been tangential to this story from the start. Remember, if he'd not bothered going looking for Hydra-Man and Sandman, he wouldn't even be involved in this. Arguably, if he hadn't gotten involved, the outcome would have been no different. Hydra and Sandman's fight may have spilled out into the street anyway, and they both may still have been caught in the torrential downpour and ended up merged into one being. Especially given that Spider-Man's involvement in the creation of Hydra-Man is never revealed or remarked upon. In fact, this gives an even more bittersweet tinge to the story. Maury Bench may not have been a nice guy, but he didn't ask for this. And hell, let's give the guy some credit. Upon learning he had superpowers, his first instinct wasn't to rob people. I mean... It was to hurt people, but nobody's perfect. In case you've never read the issue, the horror movie to which I alluded to is King Kong, and the story is basically a beat-for-beat rip-off of that film. Salmon and Hydra-Man merge into one lumbering monster, and Sadie is quickly the object of their affections. She hooks up with an unscrupulous theatre promoter, Travis Ray, who puts them on the path to the big time. This involves getting the beast, named the Mud Thing, free of any crimes he may have committed. To this end, Matt Murdock shows up and, pro bono, proves that this is an entirely new individual who is innocent of any wrongdoing. I tell you, I want Matt Murdock on my team if I ever commit crimes in the Marvel U. The events of the next few weeks allow for a few issues of Spectacular Spider-Man to take place and culminate in the Broadway debut of The Mud Thing. Why this is a big deal in a world where the Hulk, the Man-Thing, Galactus exist is never adequately explained. Whilst appearing on stage, Mud-Thing gets jealous when he sees Sadie kiss Travis. He trashes the joint, grabs Sadie and climbs the Empire State Building where he is gassed. The gas dries him out, he crumbles to pieces and falls to the floor where he is swept up and placed in containers to be analysed by the NYPD. Sadie is understandably upset. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. You're thinking, what the hell has this got to do with Spider-Man? Um, well, uh, no, I got nothing. 
The story goes for pathos and credit to O'Neill for making Sadie more than a two-dimensional character. But really? King Kong? Even the art is a step down, with it looking to an untrained eye like Romita Jr. only provided basic breakdowns and Inca Al Milgram did the heavy lifting with proper finishes rather than just inks. But again, King Kong? I mean, it's a better remake than the Peter Jackson one, but who wanted this? In many ways, this is the end of O'Neill's sustained run. With one exception, the rest of his issues are standalone adventures with no burring on the overall life, times and impact upon Peter Parker's life. Case in point, issue 219, Peter Parker Criminal even has a fill-in artist, Luke McDonnell, stepping in for John Romita Jr., but still ably inked by Jim Mooney. The cover by Frank Miller is pretty good. Peter is in jail, wearing one of Bruce Banner's cast-off shirts, given the state of it, whilst the symbolic Spider-Man looms large in the background. Miller's usual use of heavy inks and shadows work well. However, this is another plot-heavy issue, with no real burring on Peter Parker's life. It also makes no sense. Spider-Man breaks into Riker's Island Penitentiary to investigate why the facility has become a revolving door for breakouts recently. This is not an assignment, he just does this off his own back. So first of all, we have to accept that this maximum security prison has no searchlights, no guards, and no cameras, and Spider-Man can just jump over the fence and Bob's your uncle, he's inside. Now, sure, as the story turns out, it's entirely possible that the man behind the scenes could have arranged for all these things to have been shut off. But wouldn't that arise some suspicion? Then, in an incredibly stupid move, Peter takes off his costume, leaves it in a web packet on the wall, and starts walking around the prison as Peter Parker. Why? He couldn't just take his photos as Spider-Man? Surely that would have made much more sense, because as Spider-Man, he can run for it when everything inevitably goes tits up. Spider-Man's already a much mistrusted figure. What's one more misdemeanour on his ledger? But no, he does this as Peter, and as Peter, he fortunately stumbles upon exactly the kind of jailbreak he was looking for, this time involving the Grey Gargoyle, Jonas Harrow, and the mysterious mastermind behind all these breaks in the first place. But then, in an even stupider move, if that were possible, Peter stops the jailbreak as Peter, and is arrested for being there in the first place. What the hell did he think would happen? Peter is told he can't have seen what he saw, as the Grey Gargoyle and Jonas Harrow are in conference with the Warden. And thus, a major plot point cometh. Peter's camera proves what he has to say, but the guards take it off him, give it to the Warden, who leaves it on his desk, where it is stolen by a janitor. It occurs to me that with digital technology, this story couldn't be told today. I mean, it was too dumb to be told back then, but at least now, it would be over by page four. In court the next day, Peter is accused of masterminding the jailbreaks by some eyepatch-wearing dude called Armand Dubroff. Even Matt Murdock, who last issue successfully argued that the mud thing was a completely different life form to the two men he was comprised of, apparently can come up with no legal loophole that will help Peter. You know, alibis for the last few jailbreaks, establishing if Peter had any prior relationship with these people, sudden influxes of money into Peter's accounts, you know, little stuff like that. No, 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 all that's beyond Matt Murdock's understanding. And so, because of this 
incredible lapse of professionalism on behalf of Matthew Murdoch, Peter Parker is sent down with bail posted at $50,000. Jonah refuses to post Peter's bail as Peter wasn't on a bugle gig when it suddenly occurs to Peter that his camera has photos on it that can prove his innocence. This only occurs to him now? It occurred to me pages ago. Wouldn't it have been incredibly useful information to pass on to your lawyer before you went to court, Peter? Peter finally does tell Matt and asks him to locate the camera, which he says was confiscated by the guards. No problem, that should be in evidence. However, the light-fingered janitor has taken the camera to a pawn shop, so Matt is shit out of luck. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but isn't this the kind of thing a good lawyer could have used to exonerate his client? The guards have lost a vital piece of evidence. Is that not enough to get this thrown out of court? It's not needed, though, because Aunt May, terminally cash-strapped Aunt May, has raised 50 grand from her friends in the nursing home. This story is severely damaging my calm. Peter thanks his aunt and walks home. Irony alert! Right past the very pawn shop his camera is in. Peter encounters Lonesome Pincus at his apartment building, who tells Peter he has a gig. Subplot alert! Peter is then forced to use the costume that is faded and some old web shooters, and he heads back to Rikers to get his newer costume. He throws the old costume and web shooters away, which again, made no sense. Why not just web them into a web packet and stick them on his back like he normally does? The Grey Gargoyle and Jonas Harrow have found out about the camera, tracked it to the janitor, who told them about the pawn shop. Spider-Man follows them. We learn that Dubrov has something on the warden and has been blackmailing him, and he has been organising the prison breaks for some reason. It's never explained. The fight at the pawn shop happens and the camera is destroyed, but in a real stroke of luck, the pawnbroker used the last few exposures to take a few photos of his grandson, meaning the film has been saved. The end. Presumably the film totally exonerates Peter and gets his arrest record expunged. Well, once Matt Murdock does his job properly, because there's no way he gets a job as a teacher with an arrest record. Overall, though, this is a mess of a story. It only works if Peter is as thick as pig shit, and even then not particularly well. The art is nice, though. I wonder if Denny's getting bored. Next time, we conclude with issues 221, 223, and annual 15. But before that, let us move on to the email section of the show. Tim Elliott emailed in, under an alias of Finula O'Boy Elliott, which confused me at first. The name's Bartowski. Chuck Bartowski. Hello, Andy. Once again, you have introduced me to a show that I was aware of but never watched. I'm on episode four of Chuck as I write this email. I was aware of the series during its run, but never gave it a try. You are correct. The show has loads of charm due to Zachary Levi and the supporting cast. I especially like Adam Baldwin. If you've never seen one of his early films, My Bodyguard, I highly recommend it. I'm having a lot of fun with the show so far, and look forward to the rest of the series. Unlike most of the nerd geek world, I don't hate Big Bang Theory. I think the first few seasons are pretty good, even if the characters are written pretty broad. The show is a product of what Hollywood thinks nerds are, and the comedy grows very predictable as the show outlasted its stay. Chuck has some broad characterization in its supporting roles, but the Bymore group is pretty one-dimensional. But he's saved by Levi's earnest portrayal of Chuck, and the soundtrack is spot on. Morgan feels like a budget Charlie Day character. I agree the setup is incredible, and for that it feels like an 80s action-adventure show, but with more character growth. 
I think Chuck owes its DNA to shows like The Greatest American Hero and Joe 90, where an average Joe receives powers, information, abilities with no clue of how to deal with them, and a government handler to protect, guide them through missions. I also get a Shaun of the Dead, Computer War 10 issues, and Johnny Mnemonic vibe from the show. I look forward to the next bunch of episodes you have for me. Cheers, Tim Elliott, host of Third Degree Burn. P.S. The Intersect is the name of a secret government agent in the 1976 TV show Gemini Man. I don't think there's a connection, but Chuck likes to drop pop culture Easter eggs in the episodes I've seen so far. It drops those pop culture Easter eggs, Tim, all the way throughout the series. So that would not surprise me if that was a reference to Gemini Man. Now, I've only ever seen Gemini Man, God, when I was very, 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 very young. My, my main memory of it is it felt like The Invisible Man, which starred David McCallum and heard a year earlier. But because David McCallum was in it, that show got repeated over here because, you know, David McCallum's British. Whereas Gemini Man, my understanding is, never got rerun, but did get packaged as movies. And I think I did see one of the movies at some point. And the only thing that attracted me to it was that it had Kid Curry in it from Alias Smith and Jones. Um, ben Murphy. So I've never actually seen the series and I've never seen it beyond that television movie. I understand Mystery Science Theatre did a mock piss take of it. Um, so maybe that's worth checking out. Anyway, thank you, Tim, or Finula, whatever name you're going by today. Hey, each to their own is my thing. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow with part five of my look at Denny O'Neill's run on The Amazing Spider-Man. You can email me at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com if you want to join in, tell me what you think, and I'll be back tomorrow. Goodbye. (laughs) 